Let's take our Bibles, please, and let's head over to the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians, please. Chapter 6. In our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. I was reading an account in the in uh, what happened in the Old West is one fellow was writing a story about how frequently you had these wild herds of horses that would be roaming the different areas. And they'd be hunted down by the different wolves, different animals. And the wolves in particular who were trying to hunt them down, they would come close, but then the horses could smell them, they could hear them, and they would run off. And so then the wolves, these, this one old-timer was writing how he was watching one of the packs of wolves and how he saw them connive together, work together, however they figured it out, where they could get the horses. They would come close, and then they would start wrestling around and then run back. The next time they'd come a little bit closer, wrestle around, and then run back, pretend as if they're disinterested in the horses. And they would work their way a little bit closer each time and then run away to the point that all of a sudden the horses would think that they're no threat and wouldn't bother with them, wouldn't pay any attention to them. And then when they got close enough, they would jump, they would snatch, they'd catch their prey. He said he saw that happen multiple times, that those critters just, they were clever enough to just get the horses to become, well, unguarded to not be careful. Paul is writing to us, and he's saying you've got to be ever so careful. He starts in chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of, your, of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Why is that? For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to withstand. He goes further. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, having on the breastplate of righteousness, your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, and above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying always with all prayer and supplication. He's making it very clear that as we talked about and have pointed out week after week over these last few weeks that we're in a spiritual battle. There's the spiritual enemies that are against them, against us, that are attacking us. With the enemy we talked about, we know that it's Satan, it's his hordes. He's described in this text. He's identified in the text. We talked about last week about the engagement and we pointed out that this is a battle, one that is serious. It's deadly. It's one that you can't avoid. If you're a believer, Satan's going to come against you. In fact, he comes against all people at different degrees, but especially believers. It's universal. You know, you, 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 it's unavoidable. You don't have to go out and pick a fight. It's going to come, and that's why he says you stand. You get ready. There's no neutral places, no neutral zones. We, um, we kind of have this idea from the scriptures that, that what this is, is it's, a, it's an ongoing battle. It's, it's kind of like when Joshua went in the promised land and they defeated 
during the book of Joshua, the bulk of the armies. But then the individual tribes had to go and they still had skirmishes. The war was won, but there were still more battles to come. It's kind of what happened here on D-Day that was just recently celebrated when they were able to finally land the Allied forces on the beaches and start going back into France and beating back the Germans' uh, army time and time and time again. The war was basically swinging now. The, the, the inevitable was going to happen, but there were still battles. You and I, we know that Jesus Christ has won the D-Day for us. He has broken the enemy's back, but there's still skirmishes, there's battles that we face. And so last week where we parked was we talked about these exhortations that are given in the text. There's several, six commands, they're all in the plural, they all have the idea that this involves you. You need to do these things. And we identified what they were that they talk about keep on or begin to keep on being strong, begin to put on, begin to take, to stand, to take, and keep on praying. And we summarized last week, if you weren't with us, this thought, putting those commands together. All together they teach us, you and I have the personal responsibility to take time every day to talk with the Lord, to spend time with the Lord, so that you and I would get the provided resources we need from the Lord in order to have the promised results of victory, to be able to resist. And we talked at length a little bit about one of those resources last week. The one that we talked at length was the idea of being strengthened, how you need to get alone with the Lord and let Him strengthen you and give you that inner muscle to be able to defeat Satan. But then we mentioned briefly the heavenly armor. And finally we're at that point where I want to explain the pieces of the armor. The armor that God has provided. The armor that God is saying you got to put on in order to win this battle. Now Paul is sitting in prison when he's writing this epistle. He's under guard. There's a Roman soldier there. And so as Paul is sitting in prison, he's going to be able to look at the Roman soldier and know what his typical pieces of armor were, his suit uh, that he would, and he's going to be able to use that as illustrations to give us spiritual analogies. Now I want you to catch though that as we think about this armor, one of the thoughts that you need to remember is that back in Roman days, they didn't have a federal government the way we did initially. They, they, when it came to the army, the armor, uh, the armies, excuse me, the armor was provided by the individual generals, the ones who were in charge. If this commander in the eastern part or the western part, he would supply and outfit the army. So it's really interesting that he's saying God is outfitting you. God is supplying all of it. He provides everything we need, the entire outfit that he's providing us, and one that will be for all of us. You know, the beauty of us is it's, it's kind of like those stretch gloves that you can buy, used to be able to buy for a buck forty-nine, they're probably four forty-nine now. But those stretchy gloves, one size fits all. I could give them to the kids or I could wear them myself. He is saying there's a stretch armor, if you would, that it fits every single one of us, but it's designed to give each and every one of us what we need with the strength of God. So he says to us, we need to put on this armor, but you and I need to pause and remember, we've got to put on the whole armor. We can't just go with the helmet. We can't just go with the shield. We've got to have the entire the entire outfit that he's talking about. So each part is really important. And it's needed by all of us. Not just those of you who are at the upfront lines where you're every day, you're at school or you're at work and you're dealing with the world about us. He's saying all of us. 
whether it be a preacher, whether it be a nursery worker, whether it be a teenager, whether it be a retired person. All of us need this. Whether single, whether married, we have to have this armor. And you and I, we have to put it on ourselves. That's why we need that everyday moment with the Lord that we can think this through and say, Lord, help me to put on this piece of the armor and this piece of the armor. You've got to put it on yourself and take the moment, take the time to do it. And what's interesting is as he starts going through these pieces of armor, he says, okay, here's the first piece you got to put on. It's not the first piece that I would pick. I wouldn't pick a belt. Now, I'm glad I'm wearing a belt, okay, for obvious reasons. But he's saying, okay, you got to put on, and it's interesting the wording. He says, while having your loins skirt about with truth, or literally fasten on the belt of truth. You and I would have thought the first piece of armor you got to grab should be the sword. Or maybe it should be the breastplate. Or maybe it should be the shield. He takes something that seems innocuous. Something that doesn't seem so important. And yet when you look at how the Romans wore their armor, oh, it was a critical piece of truth. And it reminds us that our thinking isn't always God's thinking. God's way is far better, much more important. And so God starts with probably one of the most subtle but most important pieces of all the armor. And by first mention, it makes it very important. So we want to identify what does he mean? What is this idea behind the belt of truth? What's he referring to? Now there are some, and probably could be some here, some other scholars as well that do writing. They suggest that what this is, is this is the Word of God. What you need to do is you have to have the Word of God. That is true. We need the Word of God. The Word is essential for us in this battle. We know that the Word is truth. Jesus said that in his, in his Last Supper when he's praying to the Father. He says and calls the Word the truth. And so is that what he's referring to? And, and we know, you and I know, that the Bible says, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed according to thy word. We know that the word is essential. And yet, is that the item that he's describing? Now, this is my personal interpretation. I don't think it is. Because I think later on, he identifies very clearly the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. And I don't think he's being redundant. I think he's talking about a different truth. When he's talking in the belt of truth, and I'm, again, I don't want to diminish the Word of God, but I think he's talking about something that, that is so vital to each and every one of us, and sometimes we don't see the necessity of it. We fudge on it. Now, there's the possibility that what he's talking about, and I think this is it, it's truthfulness. Taking to yourself truthfulness. Well, we, we understand what that is. We know that in a practical way, God's Word is saying integrity. No lying. God's Word saying be honest in what you say. No, you're not, not deceiving other people. This whole idea of personal integrity, being honest, is, is just rife through the Word of God. So many passages that talk about how honesty is important. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. But he that tells truly are the delight. Let your yea be yea and your nay, nay. And he goes on, he says, because whatsoever is more than this comes from the evil one. We talked about this here in the Wednesday night Bible studies. We read, wherefore, he's talking to the believers earlier in this book. Put away lying from amongst you and speak the truth, everyone, with his neighbor. 
We read as well, lie not one to another, seeing that you have put off the old man and his deeds. We read in the word of God that we are to walk honestly towards them that are without as well. And we're supposed to provide things honestly in the sight of the Lord, in the sight of all men. Personal integrity is vital. It is essential. But I think it also includes not only integrity in how we talk, but sincerity in how we present ourselves. You see, here this morning, I'm doing the talking, you're graciously doing the listening, but you're speaking volumes by just how you conduct yourself. You're speaking volumes by what you present yourself. How you, in your song, singing unto the Lord, you presented yourself before the Lord. Was it with honesty? Was it with sincerity? Is it worshiping in spirit and the truth in such a way that what you claim to be, you actually are? You see, in the, in the Bible days, that idea of sinceros, that was the idea of no wax. That's what it literally was, the wording, no wax. Because they even, we have records that when they had clay shops where they would have pottery and for sale, some of them would put on their billboard, they would have it lit up in neon lights, can you imagine, without wax. The reason they would do that is they would have an item that if there was a crack that showed up as they were working it on the pottery wheel, they could take wax and cover it with that colored wax and nobody from the outside would notice it. But if you held it up and had the light on the outside and looked from the inside, you might see that the wax had covered up a crack. And so some advertise, we are sinceros. We aren't make-believe. We've got no wax. We're the real thing. Are you the real thing? Are you, are you really in the hand of the potter, the full clay, without, the, without covering up the cracks? Are you one who is coming before him with real personal integrity that he talks about walking uprightly, really, on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday? Are you walking uprightly? And he warns, he says, but he that perverts the ways, he that pretends to be something different. And so you and I, when we talk about this belt of truth, he's talking about when we come, when we worship, when we talk, are we honest? Are we really what we claim to be? Are we really a dedicated Christian? Are we really a loyal and loving spouse? Are we really one who seeks to follow the Lord in business dealings and really does it? Are we an individual who is really a loving, concerned parent engaged in really trying to train their children? Are we an individual who is concerned about other people's indeed not just in word, but in deed. Are we an individual who really loves the Word of God the way we pretend we do? Right here. Is it genuine in our lives? Is it genuine that we really pray instead of just when we gather here? Are we an individual who seeks to share the Word of God because we're concerned about other people? Are we really trying to live a godly life in our speech, in our entertainment? Is it true? Is it genuine? Is that what you are? He says here, are you one who, who seeks to avoid conflicts? Are you one that has put away the speech? Are you one that is, is no longer getting involved with things, the jokes and the carrying on? Are you genuine before the Lord? Start, he says, you've got to start here. You've got to start with be real. Be the real thing. 
put on the belt of truthfulness. And it's interesting as you go through the account, he's given us the idea, but I want you to understand the importance of this belt. Why it was so important. Why did he pick the belt, the sash, the girdle, if you would? Why did he pick that as the first item mentioned by a, about a Roman soldier's outfit? Because of the way the belt worked in their outfit. As you look at it, the Roman soldier's belt, what it did is, like our truthfulness, it gave him freedom and mobility to move in a battle, to march, to be engaged. Your truthfulness will give you freedom and mobility to engage the enemy, to resist. The reason I say that is this, is the way that they would dress in ancient days is they wore longer tunics. Sometimes they would have this, you see it oftentimes presented as a, as a cape, as the, you know, the, the, the bat on their back, whatever you want to call it. At times it would wrap around. This was to keep them warm. This was their coat, if you would. And the way that they would work many a times is, okay, if they're in a battle situation, their belt was critical. They could pick it up, or if they had a longer tunic, and they could hook it into their belt. And it would now free their legs. So if they're running, or if they're standing, they're not tripping over that type of this flowing garment. When we do wedding rehearsals, when we do, when we do premarital and talk to the brides, one of the things I ask them, is, hey, are you going to have a veil? Very seldom do they do it. But then I'll ask them, uh, ask them this question, are you going to have to bustle your dress? Every time, the guys go, what? <laughs> they have no clue what that means. Ladies know what that means, right? And the reason that I want to know that is, okay, if you're coming back in, how much time do you need? Because you don't want to be, if you're, if you're greeting people here, you don't want to have this dress that when it's unbustled because what's going to happen when you go back and forth turning around? You're going to wrap yourself up and all of a sudden, boom, you're going to be down. So we talk about that. It's very practical for a bride that the bustling is her belt of truthfulness to get that long flowing garment so that she can move around more easily. Well, in the same way, he's saying that's where the soldier would need to be. If he is on rough terrain and he's up here, he doesn't want to trip. He doesn't want to fall. And so your truthfulness gives you mobility. It gives you freedom so that you can resist, so that you can fight the fight. But if you're pretending, if you don't have integrity, then all of a sudden what happens? What happens? You don't have the mobility. You're going to get tripped up. If you're a person that's given to lying, what must you remember? The lie that you told the last time, right? Otherwise, what happens? It's going to trip you up. So when you concoct a story and, and try to lie about something you did, what usually happens? You have to keep on building upon it, building upon it, building upon it. And if you're like me, you forgot what you said two days. Well, if you're like me, you forgot what you said 20 minutes ago. And so then it trips you up. But when you speak the truth, guess what? You don't have to keep all these stories in mind. You have greater freedom. You know, it's, it's like people who run scared when they're being dishonest. And they're kind of always looking over their shoulder. They don't have free mobility. It happened down in Miami a while back that what happened is there was a construction taking place. And some construction worker, by accident, he severed a main water pipe that fed this one area of the city several neighborhood wide. 
Well, within a couple hours, over 50 different people showed up at the waterworks to pay their overdue bill because they thought their water had been shut off. Nothing motivated them up to this point, but all of a sudden when the water, then they moved. You know, there are times when believers are looking over their shoulder too and being dishonest. And all of a sudden, the first trial that comes up, boom, they give up. Because they know there's a guilt in the spirit. They know that the spirit of God has been challenging, you know, harboring hidden sins. If you're here and you're pretending to be right with the Lord, but you know and God's spirit knows you've got harboring your hidden sins. Your secret sin that you are just pacifying and you are playing along and you aren't trying to resist anymore. Well, all of a sudden, you get challenged and you say, go out and give out the gospel. You're paralyzed in fear. You all of a sudden, you don't want to serve. Why? Because you don't have the freedom of mobility, of service, of speaking for Christ, lest you get challenged at work, at school, for dishonesty or hypocrisy. It's so important that we have truthfulness, that we are genuine, so that we can resist the attacks, the temptations, that we're not pretending, so that nobody can come up to us and then they they can pin on us some idea of you're a hypocrite. You say one thing and then you do this at work. You steal, you cheat. You you aren't doing your job when you're supposed to be. And so you got to be careful. But there's a second benefit to this truth The truthfulness gives support needed for God's word and the rest of the armor. Okay, let's talk about the Roman soldier. The Roman soldier, much of his armor, they had this girdle thing, this belt, much of the rest of the armor was attached to it, was held in place. The breastplate not only connected up here, but the breastplate connected down here to the belt. Can you imagine trying to fight and your breastplate is going like this and flopping and knocking the wind out of you? They held it in place. When they talk about even some of, the, some of the armor that would go down below the legs or protect the upper legs, it was attached to the belt. One of the most important items that you would need would be your weapon. Your weapons were attached to the belt. Whether it be the sword or even quivers in the Roman army, they were attached to the belt so that it was easier to carry when it was attached here and down here. And so it's very important that you and I think this through. Okay, as Paul is looking at the soldier, what does he mean by this? When he says truthfulness will help not only hold up your pants, but it's going to help hold everything together. How does truth work that way? How does honesty work that way? Well, a lack of integrity, a lack of dishonesty will ruin, will destroy, will all of a sudden make... For instance, the Word of God that's supposed to be hooked here, you lose it. You're ineffective in using the Word of God. Uh, Probably the best way that I can demonstrate is taking to Bible accounts. You have Abraham, who is a friend of God, and he's going into the Promised Land. God told him to march into the Promised Land, move your family. He moves his family. And on two different occasions, Abraham gets caught up in a lie. Abraham's afraid that some of the other men in the region, that they are going to all of a sudden be attracted to his wife, Sarah. Sarah is his half-sister. And at the same time, he's, he's, so he's going to be able to try to protect himself. He's going to say, well, she's my sister. It's a half-lie. 
It's his wife, but it's also close. And he's going to mention the, the physical relationship and not mention the marital relationship. Lest fear they might kill him. They might do him harm if they find out he's the hubby. And then they make her a widow and they can take her. You know what's really interesting? Okay, please don't take this in a bad way. She's 90 years old at this time. She's 90. And he's concerned that the other guys will come traipsing after her. That's pretty impressive on Sarah's part, okay? <laughs> that she's drawing a crowd at 90 years of age. And so he lies about it. And in one of those occasions, it's the, the fellow, he he's goes by two different names, Ahimelech, Abimelech. One of them they think is like the title, you know, like whatever, the ruler, the shah, the king. But Ahimelech is the one that in chapter 20, he comes and he's probably attracted, whether it be her beauty or whether it be, hey, there's a rich man, I can have an alliance with him. We don't know why. But he, uh, he says, yeah, I would like to have Sarah join my harem. And Abraham agrees. He's told a lie. You know how this is? You tell a lie and now what do you do? Do you confess that you told a lie or you kind of go along with it and go, oh no, I'll have to work it out some way else? Well, he does the, oh no, I've got to figure this out. And so Ahimelech takes Sarah to his house and when he takes Sarah to the house, that night, there's nothing happens between them, but that night when they're at the house, God appears to, God uh, speaks to Ahimelech in a dream. And what God says to him is, you're a dead man. Wouldn't that get your attention? You're dreaming and all of a sudden God says, you're a dead man. And then he goes on to explain, you've taken somebody's wife. You know, he thought it was a sister. He thought it was, a, he didn't know that they were married. And Abraham had lied about it. Ahimelech immediately the next morning brings Sarah back to Abraham and he says this. He says, what have you done to us? You have done deeds to me that ought not to be done. This is an unbeliever that is saying to the believer, you acted in a way that you ought not to act. You're a liar. You're dishonest. Abraham left the area. Why? His testimony shot. His testimony shot. You lie at work. You cheat at work. You don't have truthfulness about, about working when you're supposed to work. You're not going to be able to swing the word of God and give it out to others and tell them how to live. If you're cussing and cursing and carrying on with the team and playing sports, you aren't going to be able to tell those others that you need to have what I have. I'm different. I love the Lord. You're going to lose it. You know, you have the same thing happen. Do you remember this character? Do you remember Lot? Yes, no? What story does he go with? Sodom and Gomorrah. Bible in the New Testament tells him he was a righteous man. He was a believer, but under great conviction. That's the only positive we have of him. It's relayed generations later. Anyway, what he does, and you all know what he does. He plays the hypocrite. He's told he shouldn't be going by these cities, but he gets closer and closer and closer, and he's eventually moved into the city with his kids. His kids now are getting real close. His, two of his daughters, they marry into the people of Lot, uh, of, of Sodom and Gomorrah, and so he has son-in-laws. And so what happens is when the angel comes and tells them, hey, God's going to destroy this place, get your family out. And so Lot goes, and he's going to warn his sons-in-law, how many there be? Two, three, five, we don't know. He's going to warn them about God's message of judgment. But because of his inconsistency, because of his lack of integrity, because he was saying one thing and living another, 
by just going along with the crowd and just appeasing everybody and not living a righteous life. He was vexed in his spirit, but he didn't change. What does the Bible say? They considered him as one that was mocking or jesting. They didn't believe him when he warned about judgment. They wanted nothing to do with him. He lost his influence. He lost the opportunity of testifying before others. He lost being persuasive with the Word of God. He couldn't even, couldn't even get his own son-in-laws with his married daughters to leave the town. Without that belt of truthfulness, the Word of God just falls by the wayside. It is so important for these reasons mentioned. Let me give you a third reason. Your truthfulness gives you an opportunity for service and commendation. For service and commendation. What do we mean by that? Roman soldiers. It's a, it's a different thing. Military. Those of you in the military, where do you put your medals? Here? Yes? No? Okay, where do you put your insignia that shows that you are an officer? Somewhere up in this area? Yes? Not in Bible days. The Roman soldiers, guess where they put it on? This sash, the sash that they would wear. And not only could it be a medal pinned to the sash, but, the, but as well, if you were being elevated in command, you would wear a different colored belt. Kind of sounds like some of the who get involved with the different you know, karates and different things. There's different levels, different colors. of Roman soldiers, this is what they had. Your belt would give you authority, opportunity, for doing some type of military service, it would be where you would display commendation, your purple heart, your medal of valor. That's how you would be recognized. That's how you would be honored. So you and I say, okay, does this ever work in the New Testament? Is there any illustration in the New Testament that different peoples who are elevated, they're elevated because of truthfulness? Yeah, for one. There's the office of a deacon, which is a commendable office, which Paul, under the inspiration of God, talks about those who are faithful in this area, they bring to themselves a good degree, a good reward, great boldness. It's a very commended office in a local church. It is an honor to be able to serve in that capacity. Unfortunately, in modern day, we make it sound like a burden. But it's really a blessed opportunity, according to the Word of God. Do you remember what the qualification was? The initial qualification for a deacon? He made the comment in Acts, look up men of honest report. Truthfulness gave opportunity to serve in such capacity. There's another office in the church, the office of pastors, but he talks about them also being rewarded one day for their office and their faithfulness. But when you look and it talks about the idea of their qualifications, they have to have a pure conscience. They can't be a hypocrite. They can't be two-faced. They can't be playing a game on Sundays. They've got to be genuine. They have to have a pure conscience. They've got to be blameless. That idea is that it won't stick with the Velcro. That they can't be accused of lying, cheating, etc., etc., etc. So you have integrity. And what's the result? There's going to be the shepherd's crown. But they're not the only ones that are mentioned where honesty is important, integrity and genuineness. If you were to do a Bible study on the rewards that God gives you, the passage you're going to go to is 1 Corinthians 3. We've looked at this multiple times as a body over the years. Every man, that's including you, every man's work shall be made manifest or going to be tried. He's going to judge. 
and he's going to use fire and what remains, you know, the things that are worthless, wasted, wood, hay, and stubble burn up. The gold, silver, and precious stones will stay. This is your labors that you've done for the Lord that, that are going to remain whether it be some of the things that are mentioned in the New Testament is charitable works, giving out the gospel, living a holy life, handling trials in a really good way, not just blowing up and blasting others, is the idea of faithful service, being, being consistent. Plus there are other things that are, that are elaborated in, in Scripture. But he uses a phrase when he's talking about it that gives us clarity that he's going to look at genuineness. He says this, the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. There's all kinds of debate what that means. All kinds of different scholars say, okay, what does it mean? But they all come down and they agree that what it is, is God is not only looking at what we did, but God, the what sort it is, is looking at why we did it and how we did it. Were we doing it in truthfulness? Or were we trying to scam people? Were we doing it with a genuine desire to serve the Lord? Or were we just doing it for our own selfish pride and commendation? So you and I, all of us in this room, we're going to be examined about truthfulness in what we've done for the Lord. Is it genuine? Is it the real thing? So we look in scriptures and we say, okay, are there peoples in scriptures who really emulated truthfulness? Oh, I got, what a phenomenal character. A neat Bible study. If you, if you never, read the book of Daniel several times through. Read it through. Phenomenal character. Do you remember as a young boy how genuine he was? When he's taken away from family and friends and home, he's moved to the land of Babylon. What's the first thing that he says he can't do? Didn't mean to wake you up. I'm sorry. Okay. What's the first thing he says? I can't do this. I can't eat the food, the, the um, non-kosher food. He can't eat it. Okay? Because even though mom and dad isn't here watching me, even though the rabbi isn't here watching me, it's between me and God. I've got to be genuine between me and God. I can't eat forbidden foods. And so he goes to the, to the uh, Ariok, and he, the guy who's in charge of his care, and he, he proposes, let me eat. Do you remember the phrase? I forget what it is. I'm sorry? Pulse. Is it Scrapple? I don't know. <laughs> it just doesn't sound good to me. See, so I'll just eat that for a period of time, and he looks better than the other guys because God intervened, because he was being genuine. But then you jump all the way towards the end of his life, okay? And you think, this guy is consistent from a teenager all the way to the end, though he's far from home, he gets in position of influence. You know, absolute power corrupts absolutely, yes? Do we ever see that in, in modern day? Okay. So he gets in power where he's the second in command at one time, third in command at another time. Never, he never wavers. Even though he has wealth and power and prestige, filled with all kinds of people that are all about climbing the ladder and getting over the other person and putting down the other. And here he is, when he gets to be an old man, he's got enemies. He's in charge. He's third in charge at this point of the entire empire. And his enemies want to get rid of him. And the passage says that as they're looking, they sought to find an accusation to accuse him. 
And it says, they could find no occasion nor fault for as much as he was faithful, neither was there any error or fault found in him. He was the real thing. He even had their FBI check him out. And they found nothing. He was consistent. So what do they do? They go to the king and they say, you are so great, O king, you should pass a law that nobody can pray to anybody but you for so many days. They come up with a law that they know Daniel's going to have to violate. Because they know he's so genuine, he's going to pray. He's not going to stop praying. So they pass the law, foolishly, and they, they look, they know it. They're even watching his apartment. He comes out on the balcony three times a day, the passage says, and it says he prayed and gave thanks before his God as he did oftentimes. They're waiting, they know it, they know. And he comes out and he does the same thing. He doesn't, he doesn't miss a beat in being faithful to the Lord where he's supposed to be. And not only is he faithful in prayer, did you catch the phrase? He prayed and gave thanks. Gave thanks that he's living in a, under a corrupt government. That's what he did. And so he bows before God and he ends up in the lion's den. And we all know the outcome of the story. God spares him. God sends an angel and he protects because he's a man of integrity. He's wearing the belt of truthfulness. Here's a character that you never would have picked as being truthful. But he is. Zacchaeus, what do we know about Zacchaeus? A wee little man climbs up. Okay, yeah, we're singing it all in our minds. There we go. We're doing it. We know that part, but do you know what the passage says about him as well? It says that he was the chief amongst the the publicans. Sorry. He was the chief amongst those who were the, the corrupt leaders, politicians. And it says he was rich. How did he get there? He was corrupt. He was corrupt. You say, well, he's no just, he, he didn't wear the belt of truthfulness. Now watch, watch. Jesus comes, Jesus stops at the tree and says, Zacchaeus, you come down, for I'm going to your house today. Yeah, okay. So we, we, we have the whole story down pat. And Jesus is there at the meal with him. He's encountering Jesus, and what does he do? He stands up and he repents of his corruption. And he says this, I will give half of my goods to the poor. Now that's, that is revival. He's changed. And he's genuine with it. And then he says this, if I have taken anything falsely from any of you, come and see me and I'll restore fourfold. He's making restitution. That's the belt of truthfulness that when you repent, you make restitution. So you got other characters that you can go through. The most outstanding is Jesus. What do they, in order to get rid of Jesus, what do they have to do? They have to hire people to lie about him, to put him on trial. So they get the false witnesses, and what does Jesus do? He doesn't stand there and go, you liar! Lie! You're a bug. He doesn't do that. What does the passage say? It says, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he reviles not in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself unto the care of the Lord. And then it goes on and says that we're supposed to follow that example. The example of practicing what he preached. What had he said? If your enemies, you know, what he said, 
uh, pray for them that would persecute you, bless them that would revile you. He did it. Love them that would despitefully use you. He did it. He did what he preached, the belt of truthfulness. But if you want to have an opposite character, who comes to mind as one of the most dishonest people in scriptures? The most infamous would be Judas. I mean, Judas is so infamous, we don't usually call our kids by his name. Yeah, they don't call him by Wayne either, but, you know, <laughs> Judas is one name, though, that we don't pick. Here, here, how does he do? He pretends. He's with the 12. He pretends he's a follower. He gets involved with the preaching, the teaching. He does it. He even gets himself elected as their treasurer. He's appointed by the other 12 to take care of the books, to take care of the bag. He, he is one, though, he has opened himself to the enemy. He has been warned by Jesus Christ, and yet he opens himself to the point that eventually what happens? He falls prey to the enemy who indwells him that very evening when he turns coat and he betrays Jesus Christ. But then afterwards, oh man, he is ripped in two. To, that's, that didn't mean that that way. He's, um, he's just so torn in, up, apart in his heart that he goes and hangs himself and then he literally rips in two later on. Why? Because the guy's a hypocrite. He's a play actor. He's one that never secures his salvation. He's just, he's, he's all about money, money, money. He's all about self, 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 power, power, power. And as a result, he's just, he's just an infamous character in Scripture. No belt of truth on that guy. So when you look at him, you go, oh, wait a minute. Where are you? When, you? when you have all these different characters and you have this passage, what are you? Where are you? What, what does God see? What we're wearing this morning in a spiritual sense do you, are you girded about with a belt of truthfulness right now? Have you been practicing before God right now an honesty? This week, will you be truthful in your conduct in the way that you're supposed to be conveying yourself? Will you be on guard against the ravening wolves of demonic hordes by wearing a belt of truthfulness? Let's close this morning with a song, with a prayer.